Okay, hey, we're going to turn in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, turn with your Bibles to Luke 8. If you have your phones, turn to Luke 8. I'm using the NIV translation. And so we're in Luke chapter 8 and verse 40 in the title of this, Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman all in the day's work of Jesus. I kind of think of him like Oprah sometimes. You're healed and you're healed and you're healed. Pow, pow, as he goes through just healing people after healing people. And so this is an amazing story. And so if we jump in at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. Now, that's a good thing right now for Jesus because he's just come from uh, healing a demon-possessed man and that city didn't like that they had a healed demon-possessed man. Isn't that strange that people don't want people to get healed? They don't necessarily want to see breakthrough in their life. And so Jesus is actually welcomed into this city. Jesus is intentionally healing people to annoy the Pharisees. And so to have a town that welcomes him is a good thing. So a crowd welcomes him. For they are all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Can you imagine that desperation? Your only child, 12 years old, suffering in pain. And you know that the answer is coming towards you. You know, you're expectant. The town has seen what Jesus has done. And they know if this man can just touch this girl, everything's going to change. So this expectation. So this man who's crying out for his daughter who's 12. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been a subject to bleeding for 12 years, but had no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Jesus said, who touched me? Then all who denied it, Peter said, when they all denied it, which is an interesting thing as we say, everyone's crushing in against him, and Jesus says, who touched me? And everyone's denied it, I didn't touch you, I didn't touch you. What's just happened right here? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Like, duh, Like, what what are you thinking right now? But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. And the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. This is a really interesting moment because Jesus is on a mission right now. He's heading towards to heal a really famous guy in the town's daughter. I mean, this is a big deal. The crowd is excited, moving, and he stops in his purpose, in his movement. I want you to hold on to that fact. So then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. 
Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James. I want you to hold on to that fact for later. He didn't let anyone else go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, thinking that they knew better than what Jesus knew. How many of you have that where you think you know better than God? Where we laugh and say, yeah, right, God, that can't happen. Even when Sariah, Sarah, before she had a child, laughed at the thought of having a child 80 80 plus. So anyone who's over getting to 80, there's still a chance. Don't laugh. (laughs) Don't laugh or this might happen. So stop wailing. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and once she stood up, then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence that is here. We thank you that the lungs that are filled, the air that fills us is your very spirit, your very presence. Every breath that we take is your life that you give us. Would you open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to what you have to say to each and every one of us in this room, Lord, that every word that I speak, Lord, would you help to communicate what your will is, what your purpose is for this message? Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. You love us right now and you're going to love us forever. Lord, there is no striving that comes in that, but Lord, there is an acceptance and a surrender. So, Lord, would you melt our hearts with this word this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. These are amazing two stories in one passage, and I think there's a reason for them. There's lots of linkages between them. Both stories have faith. A woman that stretched out and touched Jesus' garment that we know well, and she was healed through her faith. And then, again, a man who believed that if Jesus would just come touch the daughter, that everything would change. So this is an amazing story of faith, but there's another story that I believe that's interwoven in the story in its capacity. And so my message today is let's make room. Let's make room. Jesus had this amazing capacity. So we've already had, just previous to this story, we had the storm where he calmed the storm and he uh, healed a demon-possessed man. He's, he's already started to build a bit of a reputation with himself. And so he jumps off the boat and immediately he's met with a crowd, a crowd that's pushing and pulling on him, saying, hey, we need you to come heal this daughter, this urgent matter. How many of you have had urgent matters in your life where nothing else matters? You're single focused to come and obtain this goal, to be at this place, to achieve this task. How many of you have that single focus when something is so important, nothing else matters? Jesus has this amazing capacity in this moment of just intensity with a crowd surrounding him with an urgent matter that he stops 
and says that someone has touched me. Someone's touched me. Everyone's touching you, Jesus. Someone has touched me. Do you have the pulls of your life pulling so much on you that you're not aware of what's going on inside of you? Jesus had this amazing ability that when everything surrounded him, when everything was going on in his world, he knew what was inside of him. He knew something had shifted. He knew something had changed. Someone touched me. I know that the power has gone from me. Jesus was fully aware of who he was. And I believe that Jesus had this ability and this room inside of him. Though everything was going on around him, he was fully aware of what was going on inside of him. Though the storms raged, he knew exactly what was going on inside of him. Because I believe he knew what he had. I know that sounds like a funny statement, that of course he knew what he had. But I wonder in our lives, do we truly know what we have inside of us? Or do we have too much going on inside of us to even know what's going in and out of our souls? Do we know when things are becoming weak inside of us? Do we know when we're feeling the power zap from us? Do we know that? Or are we so single focused, are we so pulled by the crowds, by the purpose of life, that we don't know what's going on inside of us? I believe this message, Let's Make Room, continues our journey with being with Jesus. We're looking at the moment of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus. And our first part was being with Jesus, right? Remember last time, I know it was a couple of weeks back, but being with Jesus. And being with Jesus, we need to make room for being with Jesus. Do you know what you have? In America, here in America, we have a lot of things, right? Houses nowadays are three times the size of what they were 50 years ago. On average, we have 300,000 items in our house. I have that alone in kids' toys. And constantly picking them up over and over again. 300,000 items. You know, in recent years, there's a business called storage units that have come up. It's a $30 billion industry. 2.3 billion square feet is covered by storage units in this country. Because bigger houses are not enough for us. So we need to have more space. We need storage units. We have this capacity to need more and more and more. I wonder, do you know how many shirts you have? Do you know how many jeans you have? Do you know how many shoes you have? I know some of you in this room may not know how many shoes you have. If I took one, you wouldn't even know. But you try and take a pregnant woman's last chocolate bar and you will feel the wrath of God. I, by mistake, took the last Cadbury's 12 chocolate bar. And I was told not to, and I did, and, um, because it's Cadbury's chocolate. It's not got a title, it's fame game. And actually, it was so bad that I got texts from the sisters because I had done a bad thing. You better get her a chocolate bar, is what had happened. She knew what she had because it was least of something, right? 
When we have less of something, we are fully aware. But when we have an abundance, we've all got stuff. I want to just quickly play you a clip of uh, a video from the 1960s. Wait, hold a sec. I just want to give some context because it's in a strange language. It's my mother tongue. So it's from the 1960s. So if we need translations, I can help you out. But these uh, children are um, teenagers, children. They're predicting what the year 2000 is going to look like. So this is the 1960s. Bear in mind, 2000. Let's play this video. I think it'll be very dull. And people will all be squashed together so much there won't be any fun or anything. And people will be rationed to the amount of things they can have. Because if they had too many things, it would just squash their houses and they there just wouldn't be room for them. I think it'll be a, um, people will be regarded more as statistics and as actual people. I don't think it's going to be so nice. I think sort of all machines everywhere, everyone doing everything for you, you know, you'll get all bored and I don't think it'll be so nice. I think it's going to be very boring and everything will be the same. I mean, people will be the same and things will be the same. I... First of all, there's Computers are taking over now. Computers and automation. And in the year 2000, there just won't, won't be enough jobs to go around. And the only jobs there will be will pe be for people with high HQ, you know, high IQ, who can work computers and such things. And other people are just not going to have jobs. There just aren't going to be jobs for them to have. I expect they will set aside parts of the country solely for recreation uh, and have large blocks of built up areas and I think these are going to be very ugly indeed probably okay so did you catch that the year 2000 will be boring there will be no work There'll be nothing for us to do. It's going to be dull because all the computers, all the things that we have in life are going to cause us to not need to work. How many of you know that's true? How many of you are bored right now? Not right now, actually. How many of you are bored in life? <laughs> Wrong question. Everyone's hands up. <laughs> yep, get me out of here. How many of you can say that you're bored in life? How many of you can say that you've got nothing to do? Norma's bored. Okay. Norma needs something to do. Um, I know I've got plenty of unboredom moments. There isn't a moment where I get to be bored, apart from 45 minutes before I go to bed, when the kids go to bed. Our kids are relentless. They stay up late. So we're trying to teach them bedtimes, but it's a fight. I am not bored. But our life, I want to look at something, just a brief bit of history uh, through time that has impacted our worlds. And I believe that like Pastor Craig spoke about last week, he used the analogy of the importance of building monuments, of building truth. So if you cut a piece of wood, when you cut that piece of wood, that's the wood that uses the marker. That's the true point. But what happens in the illustration that Pastor Craig talked about, a person took a block of wood, cut it, used that block of wood to cut and kept on using the block of wood that he previously cut and so the pencil line kept growing and growing and growing and so the wood length changed. And so I believe that there's something interesting in our past to help us move forward in our future because I believe that we're basing our previous woodcut on how we're meant to live and this is woodcut's going to keep getting longer and longer and longer as opposed to coming back to the fundamental truths of what it is. So 
The clock was invented around the 6th century, and the purpose was for prayer. So they would have prayer time. The monks invented the clock so that they could have seven times of prayer because maybe they were missing a time of prayer or people were finding it difficult to remember what or how many times they had prayed through a day. But monks would pray seven times during the day, and they had a clock to help them gauge what hour to pray on. And so we know that as it progressed, the first public clock was in 1370 in Germany. And so that was one of the turning points of time. Because before time was very fluid, it was very natural. So you had your busy seasons, it was very agricultural based. So during winter, it would be more of a Sabbath rest time. And during the summer periods, it would be long working times. And so we'd have this ebb and flow of hard work and then rest periods. And so when the clock came about, we started to see the movement of the nine to five grind. Because time started to become, we became a lot more effective in our work. We became a lot more prosperous in, in what we did. So there was benefits to it. But, uh, and then we had Edison light bulb in 1879. Everyone slept, believe it or not, before Edison's light bulb, 10 to 11 hours every single day. Before the light bulb. And so when we hit, exactly, when it was dark, you slept longer during the winter, you probably slept even longer. And during the light times, you had um, more time to do things. But before Edison Bob, we would see 10 to 11 hours of sleep. And so we know these great stories of faith, these people that got up at four o'clock in the morning, when it really wasn't that difficult for them because they probably went to bed at six o'clock. And so we see all these stories, oh, we don't want to be like that. We had a culture, which is interesting enough because on average now, let's be honest, six to seven hours is the norm of what people get sleep-wise. Any parents in the room wish they could have six solid hours of sleep. So what's that doing to our bodies? And then we had technology-saving devices kick in. Right. All these devices that were meant to save us on time, exactly what they were talking about. As this technology happens, we're going to have all this time. In fact, a subcommittee under Nixon in 1967 predicted in 1985 here in America, you would only work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. That was their prediction. Why is it always we're predicting when these time-saving devices come in that we're going to have all this time? Yet we have less time than we've ever had. 2007 marks one of the big monumental shifts where we saw social media, Facebook, the iPhone come about. Now my office travels with me wherever I go, which is a good thing. And it's also a bad thing. It helps us be more effective, but this device controls my every moment. Every spare moment, I can check my emails. I can look up information. I'm attached to a world which is good, but it's bad. And so we have this challenge because we're met with this opposite message. No longer are we bored. Boredom of the 90s, I remember as a kid, I used to have to wait for my TV shows to come on. I would actually watch a screen which was blank because in England, we didn't even have shows that went back to back. So Postman Pat was a firm favorite of mine at three and four years old. Still love it. And um, 
even when I watched it, I used to wait for that show to kick in. Now my children have Netflix, and so they can watch whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't even watch all the episode. They change and change and change and change, and so they don't know the word boredom. iPads in the car, journeys, because we want our sanity. And so we've got these moments of just constant feel of noise, because we believe that maybe things will change, and we'll catch up. How many of you have heard that? It'll get slower. I'll catch up at some moment. How many of you have found yourself caught in that grove of constantly trying to catch up in life and hoping one time it will slow down? Or another, um, if only I had more time. How many of you have said that? If only I had another day, if only I had 26 hours, if only I had an extra week, but actually if we had another week, we would just fill it with more and more stuff because God knew what we were like and he, with his grace and mercy, he gave us a seven-day week with 24 hours in it because if we had any more, I think we would be more destructive than we are now. We have this need to fill with the outward expression of things that we have in our homes, with the things of technology, with the things of always being busy. But that outward expression is just an internal expression of what's going on inside of our souls. Let's be honest, we're always needing and wanting to be busy. I throw you more time, you'll just want to be more and more busy because there's this wrestling in our souls. We're like magnets. We're constantly absorbing information. We're constantly absorbing. I don't know how many of you have found this, but I need to declutter myself every single night. I find that all the information, because there isn't a lack of information in, the world, in this world, there might be right or wrong information, but there's information in this world. There's substance in this world for me to constantly absorb. And I find that the clutter in my mind, I need to constantly be aware. Because if I want to be like Jesus, if I want to have that moment where when the hustle and bustle, when the grind, when the purpose of moving happens, yet there's someone that needs to be touched in my world, will I be aware of it? Will I let the spirit that lives inside of me not have to yell above the other noise that's occurring in my world? So that I can be the light that God called me to. Can we make room this morning? Can we make room above the noise? Are we comfortable with the silence? Are we comfortable with the boredom? As a world, we are too busy to live emotionally healthy lives, pushing Jesus into moments in our ever-increasing lives. Our need to hold on, to juggle all things, impacts our room for checking in on how we're doing and to hear what God is saying. With all this juggling, we find ourselves in a constant state of hurry sickness. If you just go to the next slide, we've actually got, a definition for hurry sickness. It's actually a, a form psychologists have started to come across, and it's a behavior pattern characterized by a continual rushing and anxiousness. I found that this this morning. I couldn't believe it as I was chatting to Joe. I said, I've got time to do something. Normally, if you see me running around before the service, there's last-minute things that I'm dashing to do because I've forgotten what I needed to do. But this morning, it was the most weird feeling. I had nothing to do before the opening service. And I stood there and I was like, 
This is the most calm and peace I've felt in such a long time. What has happened? A miracle has occurred this morning. And I just thanked Jesus. And I was like, this is going to be a good morning. See, we have a malice in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. So I just want to throw a couple of things out there. How many of you are like this? You go to Walmart or you go to a shopping place, you see a line and you find the shortest one. How many of you find the longest line to stand behind? How many of you, and this is me, I do this. How many of you coming up to a set of traffic lights where you count how many cars are in front of you and which lane is the shorter one will you move over to that shorter lane? I do that all the time. I see traffic lights, count how many cars, that one, I'm going to do that because I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. I'm going to save myself 10 seconds in my journey. We've all got this problem. Um, Spiritual hurry. Ruth Halliburton is a strengthening the soul of your leadership book. She pulls 10 signs of you moving too fast. And so those, if you go to the next slide there, those 10 are irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, compulsive overworking, numbness, escapist behaviors, disconnected from your identity and calling, not able to attend to human needs, hoarding of energy and slippage in our spiritual practices. Our irritability, our hypersensitivity, our restlessness. And as we begin to develop these things, we can't take care of our very own being. And because we can't take care of our own being, it starts to impact who we are and begins to impact the people around you. Because how many of you know that you hold energy? You purposely hold energy back because you're afraid that you're not enough in your world. And so you actually withdraw yourself from other people because you've got too much going on in your world and you need to keep what's going inside of yourself that you can't give out to other people. I know that I come across that. I withhold myself because I know that the activities I have for the rest of the day are too much for me. So I've got to hold myself back from my children. I've got to hold my backs from from my wife. And so I do that because I've got to be enough for all the things that I've got going on in my world. How many of you can relate to that? So we need to work on slowing down and simplifying our, uh, our lives around us. Let's get the essentials. So I want you to close your eyes this morning. Everyone close your eyes. We're just going to take a moment to define what your essentials are. So I want you to bring up all the things, if possible, the things that you have going on in your worlds right now. And I want you to put them through a filter for me. Of those things that you have going on in your world at the moment, what of those things bring you life? So begin to separate out the things that bring you joy, that bring you life, that give you energy. So it might be your family, your friends, dreams, purpose, obviously your spiritual walk, or maybe it's not your spiritual walk. And then I want you to run another lens. Out of those things, what 
are you impacting with? So what of those things are being impacted, i.e., um, of those dreams and purposes, what of those are you actually seeing lived out? What of those dreams resonate with you? What of those, um, yeah, those dreams or situations, those tasks, are you actually having an impact in? Because more often than not, we're picking up other people's dreams, we're picking up other people's tasks, which don't give us life. They don't bring us joy. Okay, open your eyes. I want you to begin to have this conversation with yourself more and more. As you begin each day, begin to look at your activities and begin to look at your tasks as what brings you life. What brings you joy? Now, I know that we have tasks in this world that we need to do and we need to get done because there's a means to the end, right? There are tasks that we have to do because we know that the end goal is something that we need. And so there are tasks, there are things that we have to do for this season. But I believe that we, um, and me and Josh have had this conversation before, um, and it's that amazing thing that we take on other people. We, want, we, see, we see people in this world we admire and we want to be them. But you're not necessarily gifted in that area to be them. Or we celebrate certain things in leadership, in certain things in being a mother, being parents, being a good worker. We celebrate those things. And maybe you don't have those things. And so you strive to have those things, but those things don't give you energy. They don't fulfill you. Don't look to what the world says that you need to be. Understand who you are. You know, Brother Lawrence, we shared about him before, the practicing the presence. Practicing the presence was him constantly refocusing his attention to God to such a point that when he was in the kitchen doing the dishes, having lots of different people shout orders at him, he was ever present with God as in his prayer room as he was in that moment. He had this amazing ability to be almost in two places at once. The very presence of God was with him in the prayer room as it was in his day-to-day hustle. That's the kind of life that we want to live. And I believe it's making room that we begin to see that kind of life because you've got things that are draining you. You've got things that are pulling on you that are not giving you life and they're not something that's going to bring you the end goal. We've got tasks that we're fulfilling just because it's something we've always done and we never let go of it. Some some things in your life have died. Some things that you need to let go of because they're just clutter. They're just stuff inside of you and it's pulling you down. It's cluttering your whole space. So Jesus made room. And so the Father was enabled to move through him. We were able to see healings. We were able to see breakthrough. One theologian described Jesus, and this one word is really interesting. He described him as relaxed. Jesus, the relaxed Messiah. Jesus was never in a rush. Can you imagine that? Again, back to that story where he's rushing to go to Jairus' house, but yet he stops in the moment and says, someone touch me. He had that ability to know what was going inside of him because he didn't have clutter. He only saw what the father was doing, right? He had that one single purpose 
All the other clutter was out. He was just singly focused on that and everything moved through that. That he was able to understand what was going on around him. Above the noise, above the purposes, he was able to fulfill because he was relaxed. When Lazarus died, you would think a normal person would be like, my best friend is dying, I better get over there. No, let's wait two days because I'm relaxed, Jesus. And so he goes along. There was never a sense of urgency in Jesus. He had purpose, but he was extremely relaxed. God is the Lord of the harvest, not you. God is the God of the harvest. You have been gifted to steward the seeds within you. You have been gifted the uniqueness, your tasks, your DNA is unique to you. Can you let that crop grow by getting the other clutter out of your worlds? Can you let Jesus into those very moments and begin to breathe life? Because we're too busy. I love this expression that someone says, I'm too busy not to pray. Prayer is too important for me. My life is too busy that it is of the utmost importance for me to have prayer as my priority. I think that's the kind of mandate that we need to have as Christians. Not like we bring our busyness into our prayer life, which we spoke about before. Jesus, we thank you for today. Lord, would you give me the things that I need? Would you bless my work? Would you forgive me? Thank you, Jesus. Anything you've got to say for me? Okay, great. See you tomorrow morning. We bring that rush, remember that rushness into our prayer life. Where if we actually slowed down, if we took time and said, God, I'm here. Prayer is too important. My days are too busy for me not to pray. God is the God of the harvest. You are responsible for the seed within you. And I just want to finish off with this second story. As Jesus comes to the house of Jairus, I want you to notice something really interesting that he does. He only brings in Peter, John, and James, and a child's father and mother. Now, if I was having a a prayer moment, if someone had just died, like they've said it's dead, I would have cluttered everyone in there, right? Come on, everyone, let's get in there. More faith in the room, right? Let's just get everyone in there and we're just going to go pray it out, right? More the merrier, that kind of concept. But Jesus had another interesting expression of capacity. He knew the things that he needed in that room. He needed these three disciples. I don't know if the other disciples got jealous because they weren't as high up as these three. I mean, they kind of went everywhere with him. They were the true right hand um, kind of men to Jesus. And he took the father and mother. And we know this story is about faith. The faith that's in the room is important. And again, I believe that we take our busyness into prayer situations, into situations that really we need less of ourselves and more of God in those situations. So I love that story that Jesus in this moment of chaos, people pushing in, wailing, he said, I only want you, you, and you in this room. I've been taking this Strength Finders uh, course. Um, I love uh, personality tests. How many of you like personality tests? finding out a bit about yourself. But this test is really unique. Um, I love this test because it doesn't put you into a box like a lot of the Myers-Briggs disc profiles do. This test says that you are the only person. In fact, this identity pulls out 34 traits. 
It says that there is no one else like you before, and you would not be able to find another person for 3,000 years if the world kept on growing at the rate it is, because that's how individual it is to you, your inner workings. And so I've been working on finding my top five strengths. And uh, I had a conversation with Josh, he's been coaching me through it. And at the bottom five, I disagreed with. I was like, those aren't me. I, I love those things. I can't, and they're meant to be your blind spots, the bottom five. And so I'm like, no, no, they've got it all wrong. The test, and Josh is like, well, you took the test. It was you who took it, no one else. I said, that's true. And so I've been finding and unearthing who I really am. But I found that I was spending so much of my energy on these things because I didn't have them. And actually, I need to be in my five strengths, concentrating on those strengths. And Josh has a wonderful podcast. You can sign up to him. He talks about a lot of this kind of conversation around your strengths. Stop trying to be a well-rounded person. Be a well-rounded team. And you find your uniqueness, your strength. Because Jesus was not afraid to take in the people into that room that needed to be in that room. But sometimes we just want to include everyone in our worlds, right? Come on, let's bring Uncle John. Let's bring everyone into this situation. And you feel the weight of the world as you try and carry every single person around you. When Jesus said, that's not what you're called to. You're called to be unique. You're called to have purpose in your area alone. Find your strength. Declutter your soul. Declutter the things that are going on in your inner workings. Now I want you to have a conversation this week with yourself and other people about the essentials. Really write some things down of what are the things that really matter to you. What are the things that give you life And out of those things, are you impacting in those things? Are you seeing results? Are you seeing life in the things that you love? Are there other areas that you need to see life? Because I want to see you cut away at some of the other things. Because I believe that there is a movement in this church, in your own lives, that you're carrying too much stuff. And you are therefore suffocating the other things that Jesus wants you to take up to transform, to move into. I understand that letting go is scary. I understand that cutting away at things is scary, but God has a new season. This is a, 2018 has been prophesied over and over again, this is a new year, that there are new things to be had. But I think we've got our souls so cluttered because we have this hoarding mentality that we can't let go. Maybe there's new things that God wants you to pick up to start to move into, but you've got to find the essentials. If we want to see healings, if we want to see transformation in our lives, we've got to make room for the Messiah. We've got to make room for being with Jesus. Life is too busy not to spend time with Jesus. He is our number one priority. And I want to finish with this verse this morning. It's in Matthew 11, 29 and 30. And I just want us to meditate on this just for a moment. And I love this message version. Are you tired? Yes. Worn out? Yes. Burnt out on religion? Yes. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. This phrase alone, I could preach on forever. Real rest. Interesting, notice, walk with me and work with me. 
Notice it doesn't say real rest. Go lie down on the floor and just veg out for a couple of hours. You actually find rest in doing things you love. That is actually the most fulfilling. For me, vegging out is the most painful and tiring experience for me. If I lie down all day, I feel more tired than I've done a full day of work because my mind is going all the time. It's horrible. But when I get to do things in mix with rest, things I love to do, I find rest. And I love this. Walk with me. Don't run with me. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. We always are redefining for ourselves what is good. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain redefined what was good. He thought killing his brother would be good for him. By our own measurements, we will always try and define what rest looks like, what works looks like, and look where it's got us. With more technology, with more time-saving advances, we are making ourselves more busy than ever. And that's why Jesus says, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Back to our strengths. God has rested unique skill sets for you. Not another person next to you. For you. You will find it light. You won't find it heavy. and You won't find it burdensome. So you will have capacity for other people around you because you're moving in your strengths. Keep company with me. That phrase again, be with Jesus. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How many of you want that in your life? Freely and lightly, without burden? And I'm not saying that we stop doing because we need to do. We've got purpose. You were built for good work. But I believe that we've got it wrong. I believe that as we're moving through this age, that we're kind of just following culture when we are called to dictate and shift culture as Christians. We are called to transform and shape the world, not let the world shape us. But we do bring the busyness into our church life. And so when we come to Sunday mornings, we've burnt ourselves out. And we come to Sunday morning, Jesus, please fill me up for the week again. Can we live a life that is light, that when we come, we come to energize others in this space and then begin to energize again the people in the week and we just have this endless cycle of energizing? Maybe there are, and if you can just put the 10 things up again, Zach, if you just go back a couple of sides, the 10 things that are causing hurry, irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, compulsive overworking, numbness, Escapist behaviors, disconnected from identity and calling, not able to attend to human needs, hoarding energy and slippage in our spiritual practices. If we, slippage in spiritual practices, if we put that at the top, if you start to get that right, everything else starts to come into alignment. Maybe there's some challenges this week that you need to look at and start to think, what can I tackle? What can I begin to work on in my world? How can I pick up the light burden of Jesus that knows you, that wants you to walk alongside him and be with him. Let's close our eyes. Father, we're tired, we're worn out, we're burnt out Christians. Lord, we have come to you this morning to get away with you, to recover 
the life and life to the full that you have called us to. Help us to learn what real, real rest is. Help us to walk with you, to work with you, to watch how you do life. Help us to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Lord, that you have not put anything heavy or ill-fitting on us, but we have been guilty of putting the heaviness and the ill-fitting on ourselves. Would you help us to keep company with you, Lord, in this journey where we're constantly trying to refocus ourselves. We're trying to refocus the noise in our lives. Would you help us to declutter the things that are in our souls? Would you help us to find what the essentials are, the things that really matter, the things that give us life? Lord, would you begin to pull out the things that you have called us to? Lord, we just say sorry for the things that we've taken off and we just cast them off in Jesus' name. And we say, your life, come and fill every part of our souls.